A lot of uh, the teaching I've been doing in the last couple months, I've started with this quote. And I actually thought to myself, oh, I think I'm finally going to be able to not start with this quote. And then a half an hour ago, I noticed myself sticking the quote in the folder. And the answer was no, I'm still starting with this quote. So it's uh, been a bit of a hymn for me this last couple of months. And I'm sure that you have quotes and poems and songs that work like that for you too at times. So this one's by Leonard Cohen. And um, most of you probably know that Leonard Cohen passed away during that 36-hour period of the U.S. elections. There was a lot going on, including the passing of Leonard Cohen, who is internationally known as a poet, a writer, a musician, you might not know that he's a very long-term Dharma student in the Zen tradition. So whether you like his music or not, uh, if you listen to his lyrics and you think, oh, it seems like there's some good Dharma there, there might be. <coughs> there might be. So this is not directly from one of his songs, but this is something he wrote a while ago. It has some strong language, and I'm going to keep it in, um, to respect keeping his voice in its authenticity in the world right now. It's referencing a smash hit song that came out of his in the 1980s called Hallelujah. It said, this world is full of conflicts and full of things that cannot be reconciled. But there are moments when we can transcend the dualistic system and reconcile and embrace the whole mess. And that's what I mean by Hallelujah that regardless of what the impossibility of the situation is, there is a moment when you open your mouth and you throw open your arms and you embrace the thing and you just say, Hallelujah, blessed is the name. The only moment you can live here comfortably in these absolutely irreconcilable conflicts is in this moment when you embrace it all and you say, look, I don't understand a fucking thing at all. Hallelujah. Right? <laughs> he says that's the only moment we live here fully as human beings. Irreconcilable conflicts, irreconcilable differences. And we open our mouths and we open our arms and we embrace it and you know what you're saying. You're saying it over and over and over to the point that some of you said, I wake up in the morning and as soon as I'm awake, there are those wishes and those blesseds, those blessings. Blessed is this, blessed is this. And if your practice goes anything like mine, a lot of the time we're walking around going, look, I don't understand a fucking thing. Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, it's better than the struggle, right? And the struggle comes, and we embrace that, and say, oh, blessed, blessed, holy. This holy struggle. That I'm struggling not just for this one here, but for the ones who don't have the resiliency to struggle right now. Um, 
for the systems where there's not enough resiliency to struggle right now. And then we put it down. And then we pick it up. And then we put it down. (laughs) If there was a movement for this retreat, there would be a lot of them, actually. And a a lot of you have been expressing your wishes, your heartfulness with inner and outer movements. And it really touches me. It's, It's not for everybody. Some of us are wired that way. But if there was a movement of this retreat, it'd be like putting it down, picking it back up again putting it down, (laughs) picking it back up again. Once upon a time, long time ago, about 2,550 years ago, there were two adolescents out in the forest. And one was young Siddhartha and the other was his cousin Devadatta. And if we know the life story of the Buddha, we know that Devadatta held in the the Buddha's family system the role of the difficult one, uh, kind of the archetype of the adversary. So once Siddhartha was out walking in the country with his cousin Devadatta, who had his bow and arrows with him, Devadatta shot a swan that was flying over their heads. His arrow hit the swan, and it fluttered down, painfully wounded to the ground. Both boys ran forward to pick it up, but Siddhartha reached it first and holding it gently. He pulled the arrow out of its wing and put some cool leaves on the wound to stop it from bleeding. And with his soft hand, he stroked and soothed the hurt and frightened bird. I think that's what we're doing with our bodies and our minds and our hearts here. It's like, oh, there's a wound. And we reach it and we hold it gently and we pull out these arrows of extra struggle (coughs) and we put on the cool (coughs) leaves of the compassion and the love and we stroke it gently. But what did Devadatta do? Devadatta ran up and said, hey, that's my bird. I shot it. It's mine. And of course, his intention was to kill this bird. And Siddhartha said, no, it's not your bird. I got here first, and I'm choosing to save its life. Period. Speaking the hard truth could have caused a conflict, did cause a conflict. And in fact, the conflict with them continued throughout the course of both of their lives. And during the course of their lives, Devadatta actually tried to kill the Buddha not once, not twice, but three different times. So you think you've got problems in your family? I've got problems in my family. (laughs) You know, we do have problems in our families. And they're totally relevant. And I look to somebody who's had more problems than in my family, to like, how did they respond? And how can I translate that 2,550 years later into a different culture and what connects? I'm interested in that. So tomorrow, most of you are probably aware we're going to, um, if we think of the Metta Retreat in 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 terms of theme days, we're moving into the difficult person theme day. We should put up signs, you know. <laughs> Today it would have been uh, the neutral person, acquaintance, familiar, stranger, big sign. 
We could have had check marks as each person became more and more a friend and less and less strange or stranger. So tomorrow the sign is difficult person day. And I find some of the traditional instructions to be a little paradoxical in the sense of on one hand we talk about how less is more, that we don't choose our nemesis right away, that we choose somebody that's workable in terms of difficulty and build up capacity. But on the other hand, the way that this category was named into Old English before we retranslated it into modern English of the difficult person is actually called the category of the enemy. So that doesn't sound like start where it's easy and build up capacity to me. But I don't think it's just a translation problem. When I really reflect on it, um, what I reflect on are two pieces. The first, that it's actually possible to open our minds and our hearts where it's challenging and develop that capacity up to those that we might call our enemy. Or as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, you know, my good friends, the enemy. And he's talking about a whole group of people in his compassion metta practice. So that's a great, great degree of difficulty. My good friend, the enemy. It's really easy to say, I always take a pause so I can feel it. And then on the other hand, the seeds of creating the so-called enemy really do start where we get annoyed. Just minor annoyance. And then it gets fed. And then the other person feeds into it unknowingly or, or knowingly. And then other people agree that that is difficult. And it grows and it grows and it grows until we've got this big, huge problem. It starts with the simple. So I want to say right at the beginning of this reflection that when we're practicing metta with the difficult person, we are not condoning unskillful, harmful, abusive actions, either individually or collectively. It cannot be said enough times. We're not rolling over passively and saying, hey, just run over me. No, I'm a nice Buddhist. Like that. That's not it. That's like California conditioning meets Buddha Dharma. We're so nice. I don't know why I always do this hand gesture, but just nice. I grew up in California. I was well-trained and nice. There's some gender conditioning with that too. Um, From another faith tradition, Father Thomas Keating. If one completes the journey to one's own heart, one will find oneself in the heart of everyone. If one completes the journey to one's own heart, one will find oneself in the heart of everyone. That's his expression of, if you look the whole world over, there's no one more worthy of love or kindness than yourself. Likewise, we hold every other as dear. One who genuinely loves oneself can never intentionally harm another. It's the same thing, two different faith traditions. So 
I doubt any of us is going to be surprised at my making a statement such as, we're living in difficult times. <laughs> One of the things I love about this practice actually is it names the obvious over and over <laughs> and over. <laughs> Thinking, anger, more anger. Now it's resentment. Oh, showering metta with it, for it, among it. We're living in difficult times. We're not just living in difficult times in this country. We're living in difficult times on planet Earth. And I think that Sylvia said something early in the retreat about how we were living in difficult times and that we've always been living in difficult times. And while I agree with that, I think about what makes things particular right now. And one thing is the internet. There's always been difficulty in humanity and on planet Earth, but it's been very few generations that we've been aware of it in its detail, in its color, the amount of information. This is new. We don't actually know how human nervous systems and human minds are going to respond long-term to this onslaught of information. It doesn't make it good or bad. It's just new. And so now we've got the internet to draw those pictures for us of what's going on in humanity on this planet in graphic detail. And the other thing that I reflect on is that somebody else or groups of other people than myself have made decisions about what they think is important for me to know. And then they've spent a whole lot of money trying to sell me to click. This is new. I'm really taking on as a practice these days, upping my practice of like, where do I click? What do I want to feed with that click of the mouse? It might look interesting, but like, is this something that I really want to be propagated? Maybe, maybe not. And then the other thing is our planet. We've got a problem, and it's a big one. So there's difficulty, there's particularnesses to it. And in the Buddha's time, there was also difficulty. He had difficulty in his family of origin. With his cousin and difficulty with his father who wanted him to be other than who he was. He's not the only son who's had a father like that. And sometimes we are the father like that or the mother or whatever. No, it's just humanity, but it's not easy. And universally, he was also living in a time of misunderstandings and of conflicts and of wars, including, interestingly, wars over water rights. This has been going on a long time. Long time. So when the Buddha experienced his great awakening, he spent some time, the way that sometimes just described, uh, you know, savoring or sitting in the bliss of awakening. And he actually chose to do that under a whole series of different trees. He had his great enlightenment, and then he sat under trees, not just for a few hours, not just for a few days, but for seven weeks. 
sat under different trees and said, okay, let me refine what I've understood. Let me savor this. Let me just be here. And then the thought started to rise in his mind. How am I going to share what I've understood? Because that's something that arises for us. When we understand something, when something wakes up in us, it's like, oh my gosh, how do I give back? How do I connect? How do I share? And it happened for him. How am I going to teach this? And he couldn't figure it out. And he went through a process where he thought to himself, well, I just don't think people are going to get this. It's really obvious, but it's too subtle. So maybe I'll just sit under trees for the rest of my life. I mean, like me, are you grateful that he didn't do that? (laughs) So grateful he didn't do that. So he thought, well, maybe I'll just give up. And we've all had moments like that. We've all had moments like that. And then in the story, and you know, it's archetypal story, there was this, um, this God, this unseen force, that appeared to the Buddha and said, no, no, don't give up. We need you. And the lines always said, there are those with little dust in their eyes. Thinking about that question this morning, where, where, the rock dropping into the pool and the ripples of the meta, and it's just not—it's not a rock; it's just dust. Oh, what a beautiful expression! It's like, okay, if it's just dust, then you know, let's work with that. That's what we've got. Okay, it's like, all right, there's dust, but it's workable. And so he tried to share what he had understood, but it was a work in progress. And I really take heart in this. We're all works in progress, even the Buddha was. And so one of the early stories that's well known is he started walking across the heartland of India from Bodh Gaya and the Bodhi tree to Saranath where he later turned the wheel of the Dhamma and got the teaching going. And you know, it's a couple hours by car and a half a day by train to take that distance now. So it took him a long time, on foot, barefoot. And so it gave him time to actually test out some of his strategies. All right, well, let's see how this works. And that's what we're doing here. We're saying, all right, here's the instructions. I'm going to test out some strategies and see how this works. And so in one encounter, there was somebody, another traveler walking down the road, and saw the Buddha walking down the road, saw something special about him. Sometimes we're just in public spaces. Have you ever had this happen? And there's just, it's, it's almost like, metaphorically speaking, everybody is in um, black and white, and then you look at somebody, and they're just in full color. They're lit up somehow. You go, wow, they just fall in love or get their dream, whatever. Like, what is it about this person? They're like lit up. So this happened um, with the Buddha, and the traveler started asking the Buddha questions. Who are you? What are you about? And finally, what the Buddha proclaimed is, I am awake. I'm the all-exalted, immeasurable Buddha. (laughs) Right? This is who I am. Talk about not playing small. Right? (laughs) And I mean, seriously, these are not times to play small. You know, please, like from my heart, from the community's heart, from your heart to each other. 
Don't play small. We can't afford it. We never could. We're just getting some wake-up calls right now to remind ourselves that we never could afford to play small. And I know so many of us have been conditioned in so many different ways, both individually and systemically, to play small. It is hard. I struggle with you with this. No, don't play small. So the Buddha didn't play small, but the response was not what he expected if he had expectations, which of course I don't know. But it's not how you'd think the story was going to go anyway. So the traveler looks at the Buddha, shakes his head, and says something akin to, peace be with you, friend, and turns around and rapidly departs in another direction. Today we'd say, oh my gosh, that guy has delusions of grandeur. (laughs) Or something, whatever we would say. So the Buddha kept walking and realized, okay, that did not get the results I was, like, (laughs) intending. My intention was sincere, but the results, um, there must be another way. Let me try again. Okay. So he tried again. And so then he started reflecting, and he came up with this formula that uh, we now call the Four Noble Truths. And we've been referring to this all week, but we haven't actually said what they are. So here's the moment. And I'm going to say it in my own words as an encouragement to you to um, language it in your own way, in your own words, the words that speak to your spiritual path. So here's how I word them. First noble truth, it's not easy being a human being living a life. Being a human being living a life includes struggle and stress and suffering. It's not a mistake. We didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with us. Number two, the basic cause of our dis-ease is struggle. And one of the expressions of that struggle in the tradition is craving. But I really just look for struggle. Number three, Where's Sylvia? This one comes from Sylvia. Peace is possible. Third noble truth, peace is possible. Same body, same family of origin, same mind, neurotic sometimes. Same systems, same world. Peace is possible, period. And the fourth noble truth is there's the path to peace. There are tools. And the three basic baskets are the basket of integrity, the basket of meditation, and the basket of wisdom. So there are many different perspectives on metta for the difficult person, and name a few. One is a personally known other as the difficult person all the way from somebody that we personally know who mildly annoys us upon occasion to the one who caused us tremendous harm in that whole range. Then another way of looking at it is a not personally known person. And, and other, and this could be an individual or it could be a group, but in terms of the training, we start with an individual because it's simpler, and then we build capacity so that that difficult person, muse, could actually also be a group. 
And if you take it a step further, which isn't the traditional part of the training, but is completely a part of our work in the world, um, it can include corrupt or unjust systems. It could certainly cl- include ourselves as our most difficult person, and we know that. We've been here long enough. Most of us have had some moment at some point on our meditative journey where we realize the difficult person is me. And sometimes it's because we're doing something that probably is annoying somebody near us and sometimes we're beating ourselves up and all kinds of things. And then there's another way of looking at the difficult um, that actually uh, I first uh, remember listening to Larry talking about this. And actually the first noble truth itself is difficult and bringing that friendliness and that goodwill and that impulse to connect to the difficulty of life itself and being a human being in it. So we'll play around here, some different pieces, and uh, see where we go. I definitely want to start with the body. I'm interested in the root of things. And for me, for a long, long time, the body has been a primary teacher. Now, it's interesting sometimes when we have situations where, um, you know, we'll look at somebody else as a person, as a body, and, you know, it appears one way, but the direct experience is another. So I've had a lot of experience in my life of being looked at from the outside as young, and then therefore healthy, strong, etc. And my actual direct experience of the body has not been like that. I came into meditation at the age of 17 for a lot of different reasons, but one of the big ones was I was in chronic pain. It was low grade, and I didn't even have a title for it. I didn't have a label. All I knew was that after the car accident that I got into when I was 17, being in this body was a constantly uncomfortable to painful experience. And I didn't have supports, I didn't have labels, I I didn't have anything except just the resiliency to keep living. And that went on for many years. So this piece about including the body, bringing the body to the foreground in these practices, not just the heart practices, but the wisdom practices, that we cannot leave this body out. And I know it's not always the way we want it to be. I wish it was. I wish it was for you. I wish it was for me. And it's not. And for me, I'm grateful every day that like ambulation is happening because it hasn't always happened for me, maybe for you too. I'm grateful every day I wake up and feel some sense of energy because that hasn't always been so for me. There's been many other chapters for me in the journey of the body, which are kind of too long to tell. But you know, they're not my chapters. There are chapters. We all have chapters in the journey of the body. I just think it's miraculous that they work at all, don't you? Like all the things that come together just to take a breath and the heart's still pumping and I haven't just fallen over dead, it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. 
So when we're practicing metta with the difficult and for the difficult person, to know how to invite the body into the process and use the body to support the process deepening is really important. And I don't usually um, teach what I'm about to teach at a metta retreat. I usually teach it at all the other retreats. And I feel really called right now to talk about this because I feel like this is one of the dhammas of our times right now. That we need to prioritize getting in touch and working with skillful means with these bodies and particularly the nervous system part of these bodies. Because when we're working with difficulty, what happens is activation in the nervous system. And if we don't know that, if we can't see it, then we can't care about it and we can't respond. So to just share a few things from the road of this practice. To support deactivation in the body, in the nervous system level, so that when you're working with a difficult person or you're sending meta to anybody and strong emotion comes and it's like fear or anxiety or reactivity, to also know how to attend to it, not just with the wishes, but from the root because we know we can do more than one thing when we're sending the wishes, right? We can send the wishes and think about what's for lunch. We can send the wishes and move down the hill. We can send the wishes so we can send the wishes and settle the nervous system. So a few simple ways to do that. Here's the thing about the nervous system. It's ancient. So one of the hardest things about practicing with the nervous system is letting go of the adult mind that goes, I know. Nervous system doesn't care if you have advanced education. It also doesn't care if you don't have advanced education, and that's good news. So a few things. Um, the first one comes from our, our elder generations. When people get upset, a lot of times, one of the elders will say, hey, it's okay, take a breath. That's been passed generation to generation. It's wisdom. It settles the nervous system. So one thing we can do is notice when there's strong emotion, when we're getting upset, struggling, activated, and take a few deeper breaths and say to ourselves, hey, there's enough air in this hall to breathe with what I'm feeling right now. It's so simple. But the nervous system goes, oh, there's enough air to breathe with what I'm feeling right now. Now, if I just tell you about this, you're going to go, yeah, okay, maybe. It, it really has to be experienced from the inside. So I know that we try to breathe quietly in the hall so that we don't annoy our neighbors, and that's good. You know, we're sensitive. But when we're not in the hall, or when it really, really comes, and we're just taking like three breaths... Just like, give yourself the gift right now. You've had a long day of practice. I'm sure you've had moments of like difficulty. So it doesn't matter that it's later. Just see if you can take three deeper breaths right now and kind of look around a little bit and go, oh, there's enough air to breathe with this moment of experience. Wow, that's so settling to hear the collective breath. 
like, oh yeah, we're, we're breathing each other's air. And I, I, I know when we've got the cold, it's kind of, oh, yeah, we're breathing each other's air. But we are, you know, and the body's amazingly resilient. There's things like um, using these amazing qual- um, parts of our body called the eyes and the neck. It's an invitation into, we notice reactivity rising, the walls start to close in. It's really fine to open your eyes in meditation and look out the window and take a few breaths and take in something beautiful. It supports not going into a fog. And that we use our eyes and our neck, it's like we're working with the difficult person and it starts to get a little bit intense. And what if we just looked around a little bit, and especially if our difficult person isn't here, we look around and we go, well, are they present? You know, But we don't tell ourselves, they're not here, I'm okay. That doesn't work. I mean, it works a little bit, but it doesn't work from the root, that we actually look. And so here's what we look for. We look around, we look behind us, even though the adult mind goes, I know what's behind me. But I mean, look at what's behind me, right? This is so beautiful. Buddha... And, oh, we haven't introduced Prajnaparamita. This is Prajnaparamita, the mother of the Buddhas. No? So what if I just said, well, I know that Buddha and Prajnaparamita are behind me and miss that moment of connection, right? We want to land our eyes on the exits. The nervous system really likes to know where the exit is. So don't look at other people, but just look around and actually turn around so you can identify how many exits are in this hall. This is a very... Um, nervous system friendly place, there are four exits. <laughs> I bet they designed it that way. <laughs> but look, don't just tell yourself you know. It's really important. Okay? Start to settle. So that we keep encouraging a resiliency to grow so that we can work with greater degrees of difficulty. Because, you know, there's some difficulty out there. It needs attending to. But we got to titrate it one step at a time. I always figure that that a moment of pure presence with something difficult is way better than choosing something a little bit more difficult and spending an hour dissociated. That's just what I figure. So it's that wisdom to track what's manageable for us. And then the other piece that feels important to name is grounding. So we have, what I'm thinking of recently is these four portals. We've got the palms of the hands as portals, and we've got the bottoms of the feet as portals. And they're portals to connection. And in this case, I'm talking about connection with the earth and the ability of the energetic nervous system body to use these portals to discharge reactivity to discharge anxiety, to discharge upset. And it's not a miracle cure, it's not rocket science, it takes thousands of repetitions, especially if our nervous system is a little bit out of whack, chronically. But it's the simplicity of, all right, I think about the Buddha's awakening story uh, where he's sitting under the tree and being rocked by everything that comes the greed, the lust, the fear, the doubt. Who do you think you are? 
How many times have we said that to ourselves? Who do you think you are? How many times have we believed it? And how many times have we not believed it? Let's track that. And so what does Siddhartha do? He put his hand on the earth. And we can do that. We can actually do that here because now everybody will know what we're doing and they'll think, well, that's weird. Why are they putting their hand on the earth? They're taking refuge. They're connecting with, in the 12-step tradition, we talk about as a power greater than ourselves, the earth. And it starts to discharge our fear. So much of our fear is born out of separation. So we're using the earth and this earth body as the conduit to reconnect. So we can do simple things like touch the earth. We can go out and walk on the earth. You can do it barefoot, you know. You don't have to. We can feel our hands and feel our feet and just notice. I mean, check. If you have painful feet, choose your hands. If you have painful hands, choose your feet. If they both hurt, choose your sits bones on the chair or the cushion. Um, But just take a moment and notice, like, what's the elemental nature of this? The warm, cool, numb, heavy, light, vibrating, tingling, flowing, pulsing. What's happening? And it's interesting because at the risk of um, embarrassing Larry because I have no idea what his experience is, it was like, I said that, and, and Larry just took like a deeper breath. And it's like, that's what happens. We start to settle a little bit. You know, it just, it just happens. It's no big deal and it changes everything. So that's the level of the body. And we can feel our feet and our hands, and we can look around and make sure we know where the exits are while we're saying phrases. It's not like, oh, am I supposed to do this or this? We just listen to ourselves and know when it's time to weave. Think of this whole training as a big weave. So then we have the mind doorway. And this is from Pema Chodron. The book has actually got a great title. It's called Always Maintain a Joyful Mind. How audacious. Always maintain a joyful mind. I keep track of words like always and never. So, of course, we can't do that, but what a bold and wonderful intention. She says, others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. They say or do something and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting, shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. When you react in the habitual way with anger, greed, and so forth, it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. Without others provoking you, however, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. So, you know, that's the spirit of like, okay, uh, my good friend, the enemy, you know, my teacher, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for waking me up. I really would rather not, but thank you anyway. 
So um, a few wisdom perspectives on this. Firstly, if we have something that's coming up through the mind that's not the metaphrases, and we all do, and it's, it's pervasive, it keeps coming up, it lingers, it can be really important to once again go back to naming the obvious. What is this? If I was going to give it a headline, what would the headline be? It sort of pops the power of the momentum of the conditioning to just call something by its name, seize it. Another wisdom perspective is coming from the perspective of really um, taking refuge in impermanence. Sometimes impermanence is unnerving. Other times it can be a refuge for us. So I'll give you an example. I had some new... I believe that they're equanimity phrases uh, arise in the last season. And they're in regards to my own country, but also countries around the world and the global situation that's happening now. All the different um, governments and regimes and wars that are happening on this planet right now. So these are my new equanimity phrases. Regimes arise and fall. May I not add to the reactivity. And I really mean it. Regimes arise and fall. May I not add to the reactivity. But then I have to tell you what's in parentheses. I love parentheses um, with my phrases. So I don't say all this stuff, but it's like understood within the phrases. I bet some of you have stuff like this. The understood part. So the understood part in that, because I don't want it to be misunderstood. I'm not talking about passivity at all. What they refer to for me is, all right, we have had some of the most horrific regimes that a human mind could ever imagine arise on this planet and do tremendous, unbelievable amounts of harm and pass away. We've had some of the most amazing regimes arise on this planet that have done a tremendous amount of good. So I understand they rise and fall. May I not add to the reactivity means, may I not add it to the reactivity so that I have the clarity and the heartfulness and all the energy at my disposal to see, care, and respond. I don't want to fritter away an iota of that energy in reactivity because I know (coughs) that the world needs every iota of all of our energy to see and care and respond. And so I feel impassioned. Here's the other thing I know. I am going to add to the reactivity. (laughs) Even though I have that strong intention, I'm going to. I'm going to be tired or hungry or somebody just insulted me and I'm feeling a lack of resiliency and then the world situation and I'm going to be reactive. I know it. And I'm going to keep inclining and intending anyway. I'm going to forgive myself for being human. May we all forgive ourselves for being human. So another wisdom perspective is remembering um, interdependence and universality. So this goes back to breathing and the comment that I made about when you're in the hall meditating in general, you know, know that if you can hear yourself breathing, everyone else can hear you breathing too. That's like the rule of thumb. If you can hear it, the two people next to you can hear it. 
And don't worry about it if you got a cold or whatever. Like, you know, we do the best we can. And it's not going to, like, destroy somebody's mind to hear a loved one breathing next to them. But I'll tell you a story. Because it's the perspective of the difficult person and who is the difficult person. So this one time I was meditating in this very hall. I was, I, if I remember correctly, sitting right about back there, kind of the last of the rows of cushions. And there was somebody breathing really loud near me. Have you ever had this happen? Sad enough retreats, you'll have everything happen. Somebody's breathing really loud near me and happened to be a little bit sound sensitive and, you know, just as like sometimes we have sense doors that are more sensitive than others. I tend to be sound sensitive. And I'm breathing really loud. I'm like, okay, bringing in all my tools. I'm like, just ignore it, note it, you know. I'm like tracking the breathing that's, you know, external, right? It's too loud. And I kid you not, at some point, I I realized I'm the one that's breathing loud. (laughs) It was my own breath. Okay, so sometimes we miss things in this practice. I I mean, I feel ridiculous saying, I'm like, how is that possible? But it actually happened. I was the one breathing loud, and the people next to me, I was the difficult person. So when somebody else is being in that role, and it's just a role, we're passing the hat of benefactor, good friend, difficult people. Can we say, hey, I am too. You are too. And this works on systemic levels too. You know, I've, I've been reflecting um, so much recently and, and practicing my heart out around implicit bias. And it's just, it's so hard. It's like, I am never going to get it right. And, you know, we just aren't. It's, it's a work in progress, right? And yet, understanding that, oh yeah, I unconsciously del- contribute to dynamics of injustice in systems, in my blindness, and so does everybody else. We all do. Can we actually hold the universality of it? so that we can have the conversations we need to have without fear, so that we can do the work that we need to do without shame. It's hard stuff. So a story, no, and it's, it's, a, it's a story about how we uh, see ourselves and own our stuff without shame, right? Uh, it's called, actually, because some of you probably know it, I'll just start it and tell you what it is at the end. It's one of those punchline stories. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between. 
which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated and the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy's got some nerve and he's also rude. Why doesn't he even show gratitude? She had never known when she'd been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank into her seat and then sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached into her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies right in front of her eyes. (laughs) If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his. And he tried to share. (laughs) Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. No, sometimes we are. We don't even know it. No, the stocks that, that got bought you know, through the, the company that we work for and we didn't know that that company was doing this on planet Earth. It's like, there's just, it's so complicated. So heart. Oh, there's so many directions I could go with this. Um, If I had more time, I would be going compassion, forgiveness, patience. I'm thinking about patience because I know that um, we already had a beautiful teaching and guided meditation on compassion. Thank you, Carol. And weave in a little bit about forgiveness maybe in here. Yeah, let's touch into forgiveness and then a little bit on patience. Forgiveness deserves a whole retreat. I'm really happy to let you know that Larry and others will be leading a whole retreat on forgiveness next year. This year. Oh, right, it's 2017. (laughs) This year, this December. This is from Dr. Fred Liskin, the author of Forgive for Good. Forgiveness does not change the past, but it changes the present. Forgiveness means that even though you are wounded, you choose to hurt and suffer less. Forgiveness is for you and no one else. You can forgive and rejoin a relationship or forgive and never speak to the person again. I know what he means when he says forgiveness is for you and no one else, but it's contagious, and so it can't not be for everybody else. That's a double negative, but you know what I mean, right? it's, It's shared. When we drop the load, others feel that. It's a gift. So 
in relation to regimes arise and fall, may I not add to the reactivity. One of the practices that I learned here on this retreat from a retreatant when I was teaching, I'm saying that very deliberately, you all are teaching us. This whole dynamic where we sit in front of the room is such a setup for a different belief. We are learning from you. We thank you for your teachings and your practice. So one year, somebody came in and was talking about their situation and the struggle of it, and it was really hard. And not to get into the whole story, but what they came out, the wisdom that moved through them, is they said, you know what? I'm learning to forgive myself in advance. I was like, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Could we wake up in the morning and the very first thing that we do is we say, I forgive myself in advance for being human. I forgive myself in advance for the neurosis. I forgive myself in advance for the unconsciousness. I forgive myself in advance so that we've got all of our energy available to incline in our intentions and follow through. So beautiful. So I took it on. I started practicing with it. I love it. And it comes to me a lot when things are messy, when they're not clear cut, when I know it's not going to work out and it's not going to get that happy ending, may I forgive myself in advance. May I forgive others in advance. May I forgive this world in advance. And so that was the other thing I wanted to name. It's from Larry. I heard this from Larry too when he was giving a talk one night. And he talks about forgiving the first noble truth. Forgiving the difficulty of being human. I think about it as life on life's terms. If I can forgive the first noble truth, I can live life on life's terms, not on my terms. So he gives a beautiful talk on that, but that was just the headline. Then we have patience. During the lifetime of the Buddha on a full moon in February, the Buddha gave this teaching to 1,200 fully awakened beings. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. But sometimes we're furious at somebody Sometimes we're cultivating a major resentment with them, for them, about them. And I love this line from Carrie Fisher, and I wanted to bring her voice in because um, she just passed away in the last month, quite suddenly, from a heart attack. Um, The actor. She said, resentment is like poisoning yourself and waiting for the other person to die. (laughs) Okay? So we do it, but it's not so helpful. So a couple of wisdom perspectives. One is cultivating the patience to what's called willingly endure suffering. It's not fighting life on life's terms, but allowing the dynamics to be a teacher, to cultivate the simplicity, the forgiveness, the compassion, the joy, anyway. Cultivating the patience to willingly endure suffering. 
and especially sometimes it's personal, but especially systemic issues. This is something that we are cultivating that we really, really need as a resource in our work in the world. Whatever our work in the world is, thank you for doing it. So I wanna bring in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King. He says, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I refuse to accept. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. That is that patient endurance, the practice to clear not just what obstructs the heart individually, but what obstructs the collective heart. Another wisdom perspective on patience is the patience of, um, it's, it's often called discriminating awareness of the Dhamma of the truth as we understand it, that we have discriminating awareness, that we have discernment, and also the patience of not retaliating. Nonviolence means not only, nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. Again, Dr. King. And it's like, and, and now I'm hearing His Holiness's Dalai Lama's voice again, my good friend, the enemy. We refuse to comply with that that's going to drain our wisdom and our life force energy. But we don't do it alone, we do it together, we know that. We can't do this practice by ourselves alone or for ourselves alone. To me, that's the good news. I thought it was good news when I first heard the, fir the first noble truth. It was like, oh, what a relief. Somebody's actually calling it like it is. Now we have something to work with. I was so relieved. So tying in in this patience of discernment in the Dhamma and not retaliating. Uh, the Buddha with his cousin David Datta, there were these three murder attempts. And they're three whole stories. But I was thinking about like, what can we learn from the Buddha's response, not reaction, but response to these three attempts. And here are a few things that we can learn. How did he respond to his life being in danger? He repeatedly spoke up. He told the truth. It's a very powerful thing to do. He mediated conflicts and put himself in the center and did what he could. And the results often didn't go his way. And he kept doing it anyway. He said no. He set boundaries. He was often insulted and challenged. And he would often say, I do not accept your insult. No, imagine them as like arrows. And it's like he's not letting them hit his heart and affect his response. He put his body on the line in the face of violence. 
repeatedly. And he took care of his body as a first response of compassion when he was injured in one of the murder attempts. His first response was to take care of the body with awareness and with heart. He offered teachings. He sent metta. He was responsive, not reactive. So when we hear people saying, what is this Buddhism in the West? Like, where's the activism? Is it passive? We've had streams of that, but that's not the roots. It's not the roots. So we can (coughs) manifest it in the way that's needed, and we are, and I thank you for that. You know, the last thing I reflect on is after the Buddha awakened and he was thinking about like, how am I gonna share this? What might the world need of what I've understood? And how might I articulate that? What would be the best expression through this vehicle? You know, this vehicle being the Buddha. What if he had given up? Seriously, what if he had given up and just spent the rest of his life under a tree basking in the bliss of enlightenment. I'm so grateful he didn't. This whole tradition is based on never giving up. It's based on taking the time to see things clearly, which is what we're doing here, so that we can manifest the most appropriate response possible. Whole tradition's based on that. So I want to end with a quote from a couple who needs no introduction, but we'll introduce them anyway. And so the quote is from a woman, and she's brilliant, has had a magnificent professional career, uh, is in the middle of raising two children, loves her, um, her husband, her life mate, deeply, offers her life's energy to mentor at-risk youth and work on systems level for change. And her husband, still this last week, is the 44th president of the United States of America. So the quote's by Michelle Obama, and it's about her husband, Barack. And it just ties it all together to me. I've been really reflecting on this quote in the last month or so. And I love, she says, that even in the toughest moments, when we're all sweating it, when we're worried that the bill won't pass, and it seems like all is lost, Barack never lets himself get distracted by the chatter and the noise. Just like his grandmother He just keeps getting up and moving forward with patience and wisdom and courage and grace. Yeah, there's chatter. Yeah, there's noise, internal and external. Can we not get distracted? Can we take refuge in the connection with our ancestors, whether personally or universally. And just keep saying to ourselves and others, I love you, keep going, with patience and wisdom and courage and grace.
So I really mean it when I say to all of us, I love you. Keep going. Thank you.